Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Patrick Mason to discuss his new book, Restoration, God's Call to the 21st Century World. Patrick Mason holds the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University, where he is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies and History. Educated at Brigham Young University and the University of Notre Dame, Mason is a nationally recognized authority on Latter-day Saint history, theology, and culture. He is the author or editor of several books for both academic and Latter-day Saint audiences, including Planted, Belief, and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. I once heard you say something like, one of your guiding philosophies in your career has been to say yes to every opportunity offered. Intentionally or not, this has taken you on more adventures than one would predict for a professor of American religions including teaching American history at an Egyptian university, as well as spending some time in Romania. Both are sites of rich world history, which allowed for fantastic sightseeing opportunities. Welcome, Patrick. I'm so glad that we can sit down together today and discuss this new great book you've written. Thanks. It's great to be here. At the beginning of your book, you describe one visit your family made to a fortress church in Viscri, Romania. Can you tell us a bit about that experience and what impressions you had that you think related to Latter-day Saint culture? Yeah, so we were in Romania for a few months, and Romania is just an incredible country. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. And we love traveling around, visiting all the historic sites and cultural sites. And, and there's this place in Transylvania called Viscri, which is this beautifully preserved 12th, 13th, 14th century village. And we went and visited it on a great weekend as a, fa- as a family. But one of the things in the very center of the town on this elevated hill is this fortress church. And it's this beautiful Saxon church surrounded by a wall. And, and actually, you would think it's a castle because it's got, you know, like the, you know, the, the, the parapets and it's got like the narrow little arrow slits. And, and literally what happened uh, in the 12th, 13th, 14th century is the villagers, whenever invaders came, they would run into this fortress church. So it was not only the place where they worship, but it was also the place where they'd be protected from invaders. And it was it was great. We had this great visit as, as a family, but it got me thinking that this church, it's beautifully preserved. It's a, it's a great window onto the past, but it's also sort of totally irrelevant for the present and for the future. And so, so for me, the analogy to, to, to Latter-day Saints, of course, we're nowhere near that old. We're only 200 years old, not several hundred years old. But the sense of that a particular generation can build a church that uh, suits its needs for that particular generation, but then over time, as time and culture and needs change, that older church becomes quaint. And so it seems to me that that the church needs to always be, you know, rather than you know, sort of running into a fortress church and feeling like we're protecting ourselves uh, all the time and sort of playing defense. That, that I wonder if maybe it's time in the 21st century for us to kind of lower the drawbridge, so to speak, uh, and, and engage the world in, in a little different way. As you were speaking right now, I've thought of the analogy or the metaphor that we talk about often with the monkey with his hand right. in the box. Right. And he's grasping so tightly, he actually can't get the prize. Yeah. When we don't let go, we can't move forward. I really appreciated in your book how you, with compassion and humility, described why maybe some of these ideas were set up in the past. Because like those people who built the fortress church, there were some real forces trying to tear them down. And so that's the reason they were created then. But now those reasons are no longer there. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, I'm I'm a historian. Nobody appreciates the past more than I do, and and tradition. But that's exactly right. And I love that metaphor. You know, the the, the monkey holding on uh, to to the prize in the box. 
For us to think differently about the present and about the future is not to render judgment on the past, right? That um, the, the people made decisions and they created institutions, that they built the church that was uh, necessary for their generation, for their time, for their needs, for their culture. And one of the things, you know, if, if, if there's one of the, a major theme throughout the book, it's, it's the sense that I really believe in this notion of an ongoing restoration. And if we believe in an ongoing restoration, if we believe in the ninth article of faith that God still has many things to re- reveal to us pertaining to the kingdom of God, then we should expect things to change. And we should expect that our generation's church is maybe going to look a little different from previous generations' church. And again, that's not to pass judgment on them. It's actually to celebrate the fact that we have a living church uh, that, that God continues to, to lead. You mentioned that the 200th anniversary of the first vision, which occurred in 2020, afforded members an opportunity to reassess what is contained in our church's metaphorical treasury, looking back to this experience you had in Romania. The assumption is that maybe there are things there that have not been used in a while and are no longer necessary. If you were to look around, what would you consider discarding and why? We always have to reassess where we're at and what we've inherited. Uh, I have a a tremendous appreciation for tradition in in a lot of ways. um, I I defer to tradition, but I think the administration of President Nelson has, has shown us as a church that we don't always have to do things the same way. That in a church that believes in revelation, in a church that believes in inspiration, that things are going to change, sometimes real small things, but some, sometimes bigger things as well. As I look around, as I, as I look at these things that, we, that we've held on to, and, and again, that have served us well in the past, I wonder if some of these things have gotten a little dusty over time. Uh, so, for instance, I love the King James Bible. I actually love the, the poetry of it. I, I love the, the language of it. But through biblical studies, we know that there are stronger and more accurate and more accessible translations uh, I don't think it means we have to discard the King James Bible, especially insofar as it correlates with the Book of Mormon and the language of, of other Restoration Scripture. But I think we can be more open to, to modern translations of the Bible, so, something like you know what Thomas Wayman has done with the New Testament, w- which he did and published with Deseret Book. I think some of our ideas about uh, women uh, certainly haven't aged particularly well into the 21st century. If you if you look at some of the rhetoric that we had from the 19th and even into the uh, mid and, and late 20th century, I think we just have, have grown as a culture and we understand the complementary roles of men and women uh, in a different way in the 21st century than, than we have in, in, in the past. So, um, you know, I, I think also for, for me, our, our approach to church education um, and this is already changing within the church. Uh, but I grew up in a church, and I'm not that old. I'm <laughs> middle-aged. I'm in my mid-40s. Uh, where really, you know, education was pretty unidirectional. And, you know, the sense that you would have questions or, you know, you know like real questions uh, about things, and, and you would ask those, and those questions would be honored. Uh, uh, you know, I, I talk about church education sometimes being like a game of Jeopardy, where the only good questions are the ones where we already have the answers. And, and actually, we're, we're seeing a real development there. And, and President Ballard has, has, has talked about the, the fact that church educators should welcome questions. We're not afraid of questions. We don't shut people down with their questions. So, so I think there's kind of an older model of church education that, uh, that, that we're seeing change. So, so those are just a, a few of the things that, again, I, th- I think served previous generations well in, in a certain way. But, but the, I think it's fair for us to reassess as we move forward. And just as a spoiler, I would interject here that when we're thinking previous generations, we don't need to think six generations away necessarily. I think of things that were instituted in my lifetime, and I'm not that much older than you, that maybe could be reassessed. Yeah, that's right. So we're not just talking about the pioneer church versus the 21st century church, that there are things in our own lifetimes and, you know, th- this is actually what President Nelson's ministry has sort of opened my eyes to is I, I don't think I had fully appreciated the fact that in my, again, you know, 44 years that the church was 
pretty much the same for for most of 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 that time and and it was great it gave me a foundation i mean we we've had a a a pretty good run in the late 20th and early 21st century in terms of growth and stability and strengthening members and all kinds of things but with some of the changes that we've begun to see under president nelson it it made me realize that that maybe there was there was a little bit of um Stagnation might be too strong of a word. It probably is too strong of a word, but but there was something of a kind of status quo. I mean, it's it kind of like we, we we were pulling the wagon in the same rut uh, for for several decades, and and so I think it was time for us to to look around and and say maybe we need to you know dust some things off and freshen things up for for the twenty first century. I wonder how this would be helpful. As I was reading your book, I thought maybe one of the goals in writing could have been to correct misconceptions inculcated into Latter-day Saint folklore. Am I correct? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I I am a big believer in the standard works in, in, in the scriptures in conjunction with the words of the living prophets and, and with the inspiration with the Holy Ghost. But I think one of the things that the scriptures can do for us is that they are always there as a, as a resource, a, a kind of living fountain for us to go back to. And then they speak prophetically to us so that we can look around and say, what are we doing? And, and are, we, are we doing this the best way that we can? Are we living? Have we created our church, our society, our families, our own individual lives and our discipleship in the best way to, to follow Jesus. And, and those scriptures, in addition, you know, to the words of living prophets, this, this is why we believe it's so important to have uh, present revelation, can speak to us and force us to think critically about what, what we've been doing and our habits and our culture. And we all know this. I mean, everybody knows that, that there, um, there are doctrines of the gospel and, um, and there's the culture of the church and the culture of the people. And for the most part, it's it's a it's a happy marriage. I actually think we have a wonderful culture. I actually think we we produce great people. Uh, we produce great families, but we're not perfect, right? We do not live in Zion uh, today, even though we sometimes call it that. But but we don't. Uh, our culture does not um, approximate Zion as as we read about it in the scriptures. And so so I think um, it's not just me. I th- I think it's all of our jobs to constantly be re- reassessing and looking around. At our family culture, at our at our ward culture, at our broader church culture, and to say what can we do when we look at at what Zion looks like, when we look at the teachings of Jesus, when we look at the teachings of the prophets, what what can we do better? What habits have we accumulated? And it's just natural; it's, it's, it's part of human life. We sort of accumulate habits over time. Sometimes sometimes we inherit them from the broader culture, and so for us to always be reassessing and say, is this really the way that we want to do it, or better, actually, is this the way that God wants us to do it? If you reflect on the last few years under President Nelson, you can notice a definite improvisational, yeah. if I can use that word, nature to some of the changes, not impetuous, but let's try this. Does it work? No, let's refine it. You know, we saw that with, okay, let's go down to two hours, which most people have loved. But let's let's have it a discussion instead of a lesson. Let's put the chairs in a circle. And then they said, oh, well, maybe let's step away from that. And then COVID-19 hit. And they said, well, let's go to Zoom. And everybody's like, really? Is, <laughs> is, is this allowed? You know, can we do this? Yeah, we can do this. The fading utility of many of the frameworks you listed are obvious. But if one is going to remove a cherished treasure, the sting is less pronounced, of course, if it is replaced with something better. So you pick up this theme when discussing the commonly held notion that everyone on the planet will inevitably come under the influence of the Latter-day Saint Church. This is just one topic that you cover about, okay, we have this idea, let's look at it in a different way. How did you contextualize this concept to help reconcile the light found in places outside of the Latter-day Saint tradition? Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's a great question. And that really is one of the animating questions behind the book. Because, you know, in, in the late 20th century, I think one of the things that, that we developed in, in our lifetimes uh, was a bit of an addiction to growth. Uh, and growth for growth's sake and growth as a testament to the truthfulness of the church. 
Um, and it is phenomenal, uh, the, the church's growth in, in the late 20th and early 21st century. I mean, it's just an unbelievable story. But, um, but, but that seems to be leveling off a little bit. And look, uh, those of us who live, especially among Latter-day Saints or in the kind of Mormon culture region, it, sometimes it can be easy to forget that Latter-day Saints can make up 0.2% of the whole world population, 0.2%. Uh, we're, we're tiny. And if we're talking about active Latter-day Saints, it would be maybe half of that at, at, at best. And and so it, I think it really forces us to ask the question, what is our role in the world? What are we supposed to do? And then as we as we spread out in the world, as we get to know other people, uh, people of other faiths or maybe of no faith at all, we realize, oh, wait a minute, they're not all evil people. Uh, they have a lot of gifts. They have a lot of light. They have a lot of things maybe to teach us even. So how do we, how do we both deal with the fact that, you know, this idea of the stone cut out of the, out of the mountain without hands, well, we're not filling the world numerically. Um, and there's no indication that we're going to at any point. Um, and also there's a lot of light and truth out there in, in addition to, to darkness and confusion. Those things have always coexisted. So how do we make sense of all of this? Well, well, to me, the, the, the first answer to this, I mean, it just comes straight out of the teachings of, of Jesus. And if you think about what are the metaphors that he used for the kingdom of God, he used metaphors like light and yeast and salt. We oftentimes talk about the mustard seed. These are all very, very small things. The mustard seed analogy, we, we talk about, oh, it starts really small and then it gets big. Well, a mustard seed is, a mustard plant is still not very big compared to an oak or, you know, something like that. So it was never, it's never the biggest plant. Uh, it's never the biggest thing. And, and, and then you think about uh, yeast. Um, Jesus didn't compare us to the loaf. He compared us to the yeast. And it's, it's the small thing, very small in comparison to the whole, in proportion to the whole. But it's the activating agent. It's the leavening agent. It's the, it's the agent that gives life to the rest of it. It's a kind of catalyst effect. And it seems to me that that's what Jesus calls his followers to do. It's not a promise to be the biggest. It's not a promise to dominate. Uh, if anything, it's, it's, it's a promise to work together with the other ingredients, with the rest of the loaf, in a kind of catalyst relationship. Um, that uh, that through our goodness, through whatever gifts and grace uh, we've been given, that we can again work with the rest of the ingredients to to bring about something you know really really powerful, really really you know uh, really great. Salt does the same thing. I mean, you only need a little pinch of salt to to totally transform a dish. So those are the metaphors that Jesus used, and and it seems to me that that maybe as opposed to you know this this all this talk of growth that was so important in the in the church that I grew up with and that I went on a mission and and you know we were focusing on numbers and growth and all those kinds of things um that maybe returning back to the metaphors that Jesus had uh for us uh, maybe helps us think a little bit differently and maybe more productively about our our role in the world and our relationship to other people and 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 the rest of God's children oh i love that you state restoration the term is one of those words that only makes sense when connected to something else. In other words, for a restoration to happen, something has to be restored. With that in mind, what exactly is being restored when we speak of the restoration initiated through Joseph Smith? According to the church's bicentennial proclamation to the world, what does the restoration, big R, mm -hmm. entail? Yeah, I have to say this is one of the things that surprised me when I was writing this book. So, so I think the in, in the bicentennial proclamation, and I think the way that we normally talk about it, what what is restored in the restoration? Um, we oftentimes talk about the church being restored. We talk about the fullness of the gospel being restored. We talk about priesthood and especially priesthood keys uh, being restored, and, and maybe a handful of other things. And and I think those are all perfectly good answers. I think there's a lot of truth to to all of that, but. Uh, I was really interested when I w started writing the book in, in thinking, because I, I was very much thinking along those lines as well. And, and I said, well, I, I want to go back and see what Joseph Smith had to say. And, and again, dive into the scriptures, dive into restoration scripture to see what, you know, uh, find some quotes about the restoration of the church and so forth. And 
I was shocked. Uh, I mean, this is what happens when you do research. Sometimes you learn stuff. As I did a deep dive into Restoration Scripture and into the words of Joseph Smith, which you can easily find online through the Joseph Smith Papers website, Joseph Smith never once used the phrase restored church, like quote unquote restored church. He never even used the phrase restored gospel uh, in, in so many words, quote unquote restored gospel. This floored me. And, and so then I started doing more digging. And in fact, the, the phrase restored church doesn't appear in general conference until 1918, almost a century after the beginning of the restoration. Now, the, the concept of restoration was really important to the first generation of, of Latter-day Saints, including Joseph Smith. The, the word restoration, the concept of restoration is all over the place. Uh, it's all over the place in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and, and their other teachings. But what were they normally talking about? And, and I think I kind of knew this, having read the Book of Mormon enough times, but it never fully sort of crystallized in my mind. The, most of the time when the Book of Mormon talks about restoration, except when it uses it in a kind of prosaic way, like the restoration of a body or restoration of a king or something like that. But theologically, most of the time when the Book of Mormon, when the Doctrine and Covenants and when Joseph Smith was talking about restoration, they were talking about Israel. They were talking about a restoration of the house of Israel, restoration of the scattered remnants of Israel, restoration of the Lamanites. And that just got me thinking in an entirely different way that that at, at the heart of this restoration project, it's not just things uh, like priesthood and church uh, and keys and uh, as important as all of those things are, but those things that are being restored are all in the service of what Nephi calls the restoration of his people, the restoration of God's people. And that to me, that was the clincher for me to, to really wrap my head around the sense that God's project is bigger than things and it's focused on people, his children. You mentioned that the restoration phrases that you checked weren't used commonly till the 20th century, more prominently toward the end of the century. Right. Do you have a hypothesis as to why this change occurred? I think partly we we became a little more uncomfortable with the, the language of re the restoration of Israel. I think it began to sound kind of quaint. And frankly, those of us who have Jewish friends or, or co-workers you know, th th there's always the story about Jews who, who come to Utah and joke that this is the only place where they're a Gentile, right? I mean, that's not theologically exactly the way it works. But w whereas in the 19th century, they talked about Israel all the time, the house of Israel, the restoration of Israel, it is all over the Book of Mormon. Once you stop skipping over those passages and actually pay attention to them, it is all over the Book of Mormon. It's all over the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, I think President Nelson has keyed into something here wh when he talks about the gathering of, of Israel. For whatever reason, and I think there, there are various reasons, we just became less comfortable talking about that. I think we, we have settled in the last half century, uh, three quarters of, of, of a century, maybe the whole 20th century of, of thinking a little bit more in a kind of denominational model that we're one church among many. Now, in some ways, that was the deal essentially that we had to strike in order to, to make peace in, in America, um, that we weren't the kingdom of God with a theocracy and all these kinds of things like Pioneer Utah. So we had to give up on some of that. And essentially, the American arrangement is denominationalism. And that works well in other places around the world, too. That, that model has, has become exported. And so if we're one church among many, right, then what makes our church special? Well, we're the restored church. So I think there becomes less kingdom language, more church language in the 20th century. And, and so we attach that notion of the restoration to the church. Uh, which, again, I, I think there's a lot to that. But it, it's just interesting to me. Again, it never occurred to me, even though it's just hiding in plain sight. The article of faith that talks about the organization of the church does not talk about restoration. It says we believe in the same organization of the primitive church, but it doesn't talk about the restoration of that church. The only time where the articles of faith talk about the restoration is in relationship to Israel. And so, again, I, I, I think we use this concept, which, which does, I, I think, map onto the church in, in, in certain ways, um, but it also means that we maybe lost sight of some of the other meanings of it that, that our 19th century forebears uh, focused on. Okay, let's move back to this thread that uh, we see throughout your book and the metaphor of the monkey clutching yeah. <laughs> that thing. 
this is a question I've had over the last few years as I've delved deeper into biblical studies, New Testament studies, church history, especially 19th century church history, and then learned some things maybe about the temple ceremony and things that were in the New Testament church and weren't. I grew up in the late 20th century thinking this restoration was bringing back things that had been on earth before. And as I've studied more, I've realized this never was anywhere mm-hmm. before. This is something that we got through Joseph Smith. As I was reading this little section in your book, I almost had a little aha moment to be tried, but it was, this is bringing me peace because I don't have to find this in the past. I can say, this is brand new. And that goes back to your discussion of what the word restoration even means. You want to talk about the metaphor you used in the book? Yeah, I grew up thinking very much the same as as you. And the and and the metaphor I always used on my mission was that the, the church is like this, I don't know, beautiful glass table or something like that that that, that gets broken, it gets shattered uh, in a, in a bunch of different pieces. And of course, this is a way this was kind of a polemic we used against both Catholics and against Protestants. So we said, okay, the the the, the table is shattered, wink wink Catholics, right? Uh, and that, by the way, was really funny in your book. <laughs> I got to tell listeners, this is such an easy read, this book. And it's a fast read. It's an entertaining read. And there's even laughs in it, like that phrase that like you so, just right. shared. <laughs> right. I mean, so, so it's like on the one hand, we're talking to Catholics. On the other hand, it's like you can't just glue it back together, Protestants, you know, which I think shows that we don't fully appreciate either of those theological traditions, either Catholicism or Protestantism. I mean, those are caricatures of them. But the idea that well, we just have to build the, 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 the glass table brand new, the exact way that it was in the beginning, that's, that's what the goal is, right? And that's what the restoration is all about. That was Alexander Campbell's project in the 19th century, this contemporary of Joseph Smith who believed in primitivism. And, and so he also used the language of restoration but it was the language of primitivism that just open your t- New Testament, you know, that's your, your handbook, and just try to rebuild exactly what they had then. There's some of that in our tradition, uh, certainly. Again, we have an article of faith uh, that points in, in that direction. And some of those ideas were brought into our church by people like Sidney Rigdon and Parley Pratt, who had been associated with Campbell's tradition. But that's not really the notion of restoration the way that Joseph Smith talks about it. Phil Barlow, the great scholar who was my predecessor at Utah State University, now is at the Maxwell Institute at BYU. He wrote this incredible essay about the restoration. It's, it's one of my favorite things. It's called To Mend a Fractured Reality. And he talks about that for Joseph Smith, restoration was not just about bringing back what used to be, but also sometimes building things the way they should have been in the first place, even if they never exactly happened that way in the past. That, I think, is really liberating. It means that, again, we are open to lessons from the past. We, we, we do open our scriptures and see how do they do it in the book of Alma or in 4th Nephi or, or in the book of Acts. And, hey, those are Christian communities that we want to emulate. So it's not discarding any of that. But it's always thinking about what is God breathing into the world today? Restoration, just like translation, the, the way that we use it in the church and the way that Joseph Smith used it, it's not the way that we normally use it in, in the rest of our language. You know, it's not just sitting down and, and going from English to German or German to Japanese or something like that. The translation takes on a different kind of a different path and, and a different character in, in our tradition than in Joseph Smith's work. Restoration is the same way. It's, it's not just bringing back something that is very old. But sometimes it's about breathing life into and authorizing something new. We may turn to the book of Acts naturally when we're talking about the Restoration, but not so to the Book of Mormon like you just mentioned, which I think is great because you're expanding our paradigm gradually, crucial to our understanding of the Restoration up to this point, I think within culture is this idea of a great apostasy. Mm-hmm. In the last decade, scholars have problematized boxy or easy definitions of the restoration that are tied to the great apostasy. I think my confusion, personally, 
first began after I read the excellent volume, Standing Apart, Mormon Historical Consciousness and the Concept of Apostasy, edited by Latter-day Saint scholars Miranda Wilcox and John Young. How has your understanding of Christian apostasy changed over the years? Yeah, and, and that is a great book that, that I'd point anybody to. It's a terrific book. We inherited this notion of a great apostasy from Protestants, frankly, who, who use very similar language in talking about Roman Catholicism. We then inherited that and expanded that into include the Protestants uh, as well. And, and, and this notion of just complete darkness, we talk about the dark ages, you know, for centuries and centuries, like nothing good <laughs> happening in the world, no communication from heaven to the world. This wasn't just a cultural notion. We see this in the in the writings and speeches of many of our leaders. I mean, you, you think about James E. Talmadge's book, The Great Apostasy, which I think really shaped and solidified our thinking on this for for a century or the better part of a century. But I think now we just have have a greater appreciation of actually what was going on during that time, and we're we're slowly and gradually as a church expanding our notion and and getting a better sense that. God never turned his back on the world. And that, you know, we, we started by sort of reclaiming some of the reformers themselves and, and talking about how, how God was, was working through and inspiring them as, as a way of sort of plowing the ground and preparing the world for the restoration through the prophet Joseph Smith. But now this is gradually expanding to include others. And, and I really give a nod to, to people like Terrell and Fiona Givens, who are doing great work in, in terms of looking at the entirety of Christian history and finding heroes and saints and models and saying, you know, almost everything that we believe in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, at some point over the past 2,000 years, other Christians have believed as well. And, and I would add non-Christians and exactly. as well. I've read tracts from Muslim churches. And I'm like, dang, I believe all that stuff. That's right. So we started with sort of expanding and say, okay, maybe we can talk to other Christians. But again, it's a big world out there. And one of my very favorite statements of the first presidency has ever made, and I think it got overshadowed because it was released in the same year as 19, it was in 1978, the same year as the, as the priesthood revelation that got all the news in 1978. But about the same time, the first presidency under Spencer W. Kimball issued this terrific statement called God's love for all mankind in which it talks about how God sent his light and knowledge and inspiration to, to, to prophets and, uh, and, and poets and philosophers in all cultures around the world throughout history. And they name some of them. They name Muhammad. They name Buddha. They name Confucius and Plato and Aristotle and, and others. That, that God has always been very involved with the affairs of his children. And this is why we can, we can find so much truth and goodness in all of these different uh, cultures and religions. I mean, I, I, as, as a professor at Utah State, I, I uh, taught a course, and I talk about this in the book, uh, that involved a, a comparative religion dimension. We were talking about all the different religions of, this wor of the world. And I had this freshly returned missionary come up to me after our Buddhism unit and he was very concerned. And he walked with me back to my office and he said, look, I just came home from my mission. I spent two years telling everybody to join my church and now spending a week and a half studying Buddhism, right? I'm, loving, I'm finding so much truth here. There's nothing wrong with that. That is great, right? That we can encounter the, the light and the goodness and the revelation that God has, has sent to all of his children. The Book of Mormon talks about this, that God speaks to all of his children in their own language according to their own understanding. The Book of Mormon has a very capacious view of God's work in the world that I think we have narrowed over time. Uh, so I think one of the things when I talk about lowering the drawbridge of the fortress church, it can be opening ourselves up to the wisdom, the beauty, the inspiration uh, not only in the rest of Christianity, but in other world religious traditions as well, and and even in large swaths of secularism uh, as well. How does a different paradigm for the great apostasy affect notions associated with the restoration, the one that belongs to us, that we hold closely to our heart? Yeah, I think people are a little bit scared about giving up on the old notion of the apostasy because it seems to diminish the distinctiveness, the importance, um, even how essential the, the, the restoration and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are. 
I don't think it has to be that way. Um, and I use a couple of metaphors in the book to think through this, and they're they're not perfect metaphors because no metaphor ever is. But but the the metaphor that, that I use mostly is is one of a, a farm. Um, you know, the scriptures oftentimes talk about God's work in the in the vineyard. I'm I'm allowing God to you know to diversify his holdings a little bit. And so let's think about God having a big farm. And again, Latter Day Saints are only 0.2 percent of the world population. We cannot possibly cultivate the entire farm. There, we just don't have the people power to do that. And so it seems to me, as I look around at all of the world's religious traditions and cultures and so forth, it seems that God has gifted these different traditions and different cultures with some beautiful things, things that they are really, really good at. I think about, I mean, I've learned so much about the notion of grace from evangelicals. I've learned about nonviolence uh, from, from Jains and, and, and from Hindus in the tradition of, of Gandhi. We are so poor at meditation and mindfulness compared to, to Buddhists. And so it seems to me that God has gifted all of these, these different people. And, and, and so the metaphor is that he's asked them to cultivate different plots within the farm or different crops within the farm. And given them a gift, given them an assignment, a, a calling to do that. Well, where does that leave Latter-day Saints? Or, 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 you know, and it seems clear to me that he has given us some very specific callings, some unique callings that have to get done. That this is one of the things with the metaphor is that we're not all just growing the, the same stuff. But actually, if, if, if we want to, to, to think about the holistic work of God, we all need to do the work that he's given us. And so he has given Latter-day Saints some very specific tasks, uh, some very specific stewardships, restoration scripture being one, priesthood keys and the way that, that especially the covenants of the temple, the very important work of sealing the entire human family together and everything that's associated with that. Our knowledge of who we are, where we came from, where we're going, our, our specific knowledge of heavenly parents, of a premortality and, and our destiny as children of heavenly parents. We've been gifted with some pretty great stuff, especially for a, a relatively small community. And so God has called us to do those things, and it does not diminish us to recognize the callings and vocation that other communities have. If anything, that elevates and, and helps us appreciate how grand and marvelous. We talk about a, a, a marvelous work and wonder. Well, God is doing a marvelous work and wonder among all of his children, not just 0.2% of them. But he's asked us to do some very specific things that are essential. We, we, we have to provide these crops uh, to, to, to the whole human family. And so we've been given a, a job to do that. And I, so I think it's a both and. It's not an either, either or. Not uh, either, um, you know, we are the the capital T true church and everybody else is capital F false uh, or oh, it's just relativistic and, you know, all pass up the mountain are the same. Uh, you don't have to go with either of those to appreciate um, the particular calling, the particular gifts that God has given us that and that we have to be true to as as a people. I love your interpretation of those verses in DNC about spiritual gifts. I think Typically, we've had them applied to individuals right. like, you know, your brother may have this gift, you may have this gift, your neighbor ha may have this gift. But this is the first time I'd ever been encouraged to think of it in terms of peoples or other religions. You can tell me if you borrowed it from someone else <laughs> or if it was original. But that helped me. We go back to, okay, if we're going to do away with some of these traditions that may not be particularly helpful, what are we replacing it with and where will it get us? And for me, it it helps me understand the light that I see in other places. Like when I stand in a Russian cathedral and I think, oh my gosh, I am feeling the spirit here so strongly. I feel like I'm in the temple. Or even when I speak to my neighbors who maybe be Christian, but a different denomination, and I think their kids are not yelling at each other and mine are. What am I doing wrong? I belong to the true church. I am teaching them right and they're teaching them wrong. That's exactly it. I, and I think lots of people have that question sort of silently and maybe unarticulated, right? And we sort of wrestle with it. We don't really talk about it with, with each other. 
as the world comes to the Mormons and as the, the Mormons go to the world, I mean, and, and, and as we have these interactions with people, there's just so much goodness out there. I mean, there's tons of bad stuff out there too, right? There are false teachings, there are false traditions, all those kinds of things. And so we have to always act with discernment. For me, it's liberating to be able to focus on God's goodness and God's giftedness to all of his children. I don't have to like just clutch my own little corner of, of, of the world and sort of get a, give a stiff arm to, to the rest of the world that I can appreciate, celebrate the giftedness of, of all of our sisters and brothers around the world. I, 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 for me, that, that doesn't water down my Latter-day Saint identity. It does the exact opposite. Maybe it takes a little of the pressure off of you liking the choices that your local leaders make. Sure. With agreeing with every policy that the institutional church makes and agreeing with everything that the Prophet Joseph Smith did. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it takes a lot of the burden off of that. It doesn't lower the stakes because the stakes are really high. It lowers the temperature. I mean, if, if oh, I, I love could that. use that, you know. We can learn from other people. Also, the more we learn about the rest of the world, we realize that they've got their problems, too. Sometimes we think that our problems are like uniquely Latter-day Saint problems, right? The problems of, of the way that a congregation works or the politics, with, you know, all of these kinds of things. No, there is almost, I mean, we, we do it in our own way, right? And Muslims would say the same things. And I mean, that's the thing. If you get to be good enough friends with a Buddhist, I mean, they, it, it all seems great until you really talk to them and they say, oh, we got tons of problems too, right? And so you realize that these are human problems, but also, you know, it's, 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 it's the great and terrible things about being human. And, and, and they just get refracted in particular ways in different communities. I, I think that's a great point, Laura, that, that it helps us maybe deal with some of the pressures and challenges and, and just have a different perspective on it. You argue that we have to admit that Latter-day Saints have yet to fully engage with the world. In what ways have we failed to engage? Because we've sent missionaries practically everywhere. I think that's what people would think about engaging with the world. That's what we do is yeah. we try to get everybody to know about our church. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, and actually, that's, I think, the, a great place to start with our missionary effort. It is absolutely true that we, it is remarkable. The missionary program is one of the church's great strengths, uh, always has been. And especially since uh, David O. McKay's presidency, we have literally sent missionaries all over the world, wherever they'll let us. So how can I say that, that we haven't engaged the world? Well, well, the whole missionary program is unidirectional. The whole idea is that, that we go out, we got a lot to say, we got a lot to teach people. Our 18-year-olds have, have a lot to go out and, and teach the rest of the world, and they just need to listen. And, and that's what the model is. Now, there's, there's something to that, of course. You know, that there's a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants that, that tells the elders of the church, I send you out to teach, not to be taught. But there's also other passages in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord tells the same elders of the church to learn about all of the cultures and history of the world and all of these kinds of things in order to better build up the kingdom of God. And I think we've done very good at the first model of teaching but not be taught. We've not done so good at the second model in, that we see in section 88, section 90, section 93, section 109, a, a much more uh, a kind of openness to all that the world can teach us as well. And so this is ideas. This is, I mean, it was what we were just talking about in, in terms of, of, of the great wisdom of the world's religious traditions. I think we have a lot that we can still learn from science. We've had a complicated and unnecessarily complicated relationship uh, with science because we've sort of built this fortress church. And because there really were invaders and barbarians at the gate in the 19th century, we built this fortress church and we we were wary. We were suspicious of anything that came from the outside. And again, that served us well for, for, for a long time, and there were some reasons to do that. But I think we can now, it's, it's with our maturity as a people, uh, it's with our confidence as a people that, that we can go out and engage the world of ideas, the world of culture, the world of other religions, the world of all these other things that our interactions with the world don't just have to be on the basis of either making money or, or, or making converts that we can engage in a much more robust way. I think that'll not only help us learn 
but it'll also help us teach. It'll also help us better share the particular gifts that God has given us. Because I think one of the things, and this is one of the challenges of our missionary program today in the 21st century, is I think we're giving people answers to questions they're not asking for the most part. You know, we're still giving answers to the question that Joseph had in 1820 of which church is true. Not very many people have that question anymore. Now the question is why religion, not which religion or which church. And so we haven't yet learned to listen to the world's questions and the world's needs. And until we do that, we aren't going to be able to to show how the restoration answers those questions and those needs. I think we have to maybe reorient, which includes a, a greater appreciation for what's going on outside the church. It also forces us to have a greater appreciation of what God has given us, that it's not so narrowly constrained as a set of kind of sectarian concerns that came out of the 19th century. You know, the, the reasons why the way we read the Bible is better than the way that Methodists or Baptists read the Bible or something like that, that actually engaging and listening to the world's questions is going to force us to do a deeper dive into our own tradition, into our own scriptures, into the teachings of our own prophets, and to say, what really is God trying to do in the world today? Not 100 years ago, not even 50 years ago, but what is God trying to do in the world today? And how can we as a people be responsive to that call? That takes me to a thought I had as I was reading your book. The first two-thirds of the book you took me to the edge of the precipice. And I'm standing there and I'm like, I get it. I get it, Patrick. But it has been my sad experience that the institutional culture, I'll say, Mm -hmm. the institutional folklore is really difficult to have any influence on. There are certain answers, like you said, that are acceptable to questions posed in Sunday school. And there's certain answers that gets stares. <laughs> so I'm like, I get it, Patrick, but I cannot do anything about this. And then the last third of the book, you pulled me back. And I think that's what elevates this book above what I would call a whiny book. <laughs> to me, a whiny book is this is wrong. This is wrong. You're doing it wrong. It's really this. Historically, this happened. And then at the end, you're very frustrated and upset. But that's not the the tenor of this book at all. You actually handed me a tool because things have changed in the last few years in our church. Just for one, there's less need for callings in the church because we've gone from three hours to two hours. You know, that's gone down even further with COVID. The ministering program has changed and become a little more fluid. So Actually, the church is less time-consuming, I would say, than it was when I was growing up in the late 20th century. And so if we're going to find our fulfillment in doing service within the church, where callings are somewhat arbitrary and in short term at this point, we may feel dissatisfied. But you said by redefining the restoration and and I want to go back to that right now. You you told us what it wasn't. It was about people. So talk to us a little bit about what we can see the restoration as now and what our individual, not Laura Hales as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but Laura Hales as a disciple of Christ can do to further the work of the restoration. Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think you put your finger on it it, exactly that we um, actually one of the one of the great things about the 20th century church is it was so structured and so programmed that everybody kind of knew where they fit in. And that gave you a purpose. And so when you were fulfilling your calling as the second counselor in the Sunday school presidency, there was a very discreet set of things you were supposed to do. And when you did those things, you're not only a good church member, you were a good person, a good Christian, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's less and less the way that the church is structured today. And that's less and less our experience. And I think also generationally, in this book, I was thinking a lot about not just your and my generation or older generations, but about younger generations. And, and what we know about them from sociological research is that just fitting into institutions and doing what institutions ask them to do 
that's not cutting it. And this is why we're seeing a lot of people leaving the church uh, from from younger generations. And so, yeah, so what do we do? I, so I was smitten. Again, for me, there's always this like the new and the old and, and how do we repurpose, uh, you know, kind of older things and, and, and give credence to tradition and put it in the service of, of the present and the future. There's this great proclamation from the 12 apostles. This is before they reorganized the first presidency under Brigham Young. So it was after Joseph Smith died. So in 1845, they put out this proclamation to the world. It's this like big, bold, audacious thing with lots of overblown language. They're sending to all the kings and presidents and, and everybody all around the world. But they have this great phrase. That they talk about what is the purpose? Like, what is God doing? What are we supposed to be doing? And they say it's to renovate the world. It just hit me. In conjunction with this earlier phrase, you know, from Nephi that I said that what God is interested in is the restoration of his people. That's what the restoration is. The restoration is bringing wholeness to the human family. The restoration is renovating the world. The, the, the world is a beautiful place, but it's a broken place. We all know that. that we've been given some gifts, some insights, some tools, some resources some hammers, some screwdrivers, some nails, some other things, some tools to go out and to rebuild it, to make it a better place. I think the 19th century saints had, a, in some ways, a, a better handle on this in the sense that they they believed that when they were here in Utah, when they were digging irrigation ditches, they were doing the work of the kingdom, right? And for them, it was focused on the kingdom, but there was, there was this expansive sense of what it meant to contribute, right, and to build Zion. In the 20th century, I think we narrowed that to the church, and, and our service within the church, again, with a lot of good fruits. But it, now it seems to me that, that it's, we're, we're expanding that again in this, this broader sense of it is a big world out there. Elder Holland has talked about this in General Conference. Other people have as well, that uh, this isn't just about like sort of individual service projects or something like this, but actually this vision that what we are called to do and what our church gives us the tools to do is to go out and to renovate the world. What I want to leave people with in this book is like, look inside and look around in your communities. What are the needs? What are the things that you feel called to? Because your gifts are going to be different. This is where gifts come down to an individual level, not just a community level, right? But what has God gifted you to see and to be able to do? And where has he placed you? So look around that you've been placed in a certain time and a certain place. And so look around and, and listen to and see the need and then go meet it. That's what we're called to do. And so, I, look, I'm just one guy. You're just one woman. None of us can change the whole world, right? That's not what we're called to do. There's very few people in the history of the world who, who are these kind of world-changing figures. Most of us were just plopped down in one little corner of the garden. But God calls us to tend that corner. That's the restoration. That is what we're called to do. That's what it means to renovate the world. One neighborhood, one home, one family, one relationship, one community at a time. And so when we do those things, it's not ancillary to the restoration. You know, when, when we work uh, for, for literacy in our communities, when, when we look, when we work for women's empowerment, when we work for racial justice, when we work to reduce violence, when we work to eliminate poverty, when we work for religious freedom, none of these things are ancillary to the restoration. They are the restoration because it's all part of the restoration of God's people. It's bringing his children wholeness. Let's talk about the appendix to the book now. It's an urgent paraphrase, something that Adam Miller has made popular in some of his works, if you're familiar with his books. Tell us about what you were thinking when you were doing this. It's of DNC one. Right. When I think of DNC one, I think quickly read through this. It's something I look at once every four years <laughs> at the end of January. I can't think of anyone who says, Oh my gosh, DNC one, that just speaks to me, except for maybe perhaps my husband who loves the DNC. It's written in a very formal King Jamesy type voice, very magisterial. Why did you feel that DNC one, the paraphrase, belonged in this book? Actually, the book began with this. It was as I was reflecting on Doctrine and Covenants one, and and in particular, there's a, there's a set of verses kind of buried right in the middle of it that talk about what God is doing in the world and 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 and, and why He called the prophet Joseph Smith and what He's doing and 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 there's there's like 
four things that he talks about, that, that, it, that people will speak in the name of Jesus, that faith will increase in the earth, that the new and everlasting covenant will be established. And so that became important for me in terms of thinking like, what is the restoration? What is God doing? I sort of keyed in on those verses, but then I expanded and, and thought about the whole section and you're right. I mean, God obviously feels strongly about the section. He said this is the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, right? So it's out of order, and it's it's kind of in a weird place and everything chronologically. But I feel the same way, that, that there's a kind of formality to it, even a little bit of stiffness. There's, there's some harshness. Some of the language is actually rather harsh, uh, which I think grates on 21st century ears. And so I was exactly inspired by what Adam has done uh, with some really important passages of scripture, like the the epistle to the Romans and Ecclesiastes and other things. And so I thought to myself, what, I mean, at first it sort of just began as a, something for myself, but what would it be like to, to do this in 21st century language, right? And we're not so distant from the 19th century as we are from earlier, but but still it is a 19th century revelation, what would it be like to modernize that for the 21st century? So that's what I tried to do. So so it was really important for me in terms of me thinking about God speaking to the 21st century world and calling modern people. I don't know how readers will will respond to it. Uh, so that's that's why originally this was going to be chapter one, and I had good editors who said, maybe move it to the back and make make it an appendix, make it optional for people. Some people who have read the book love it because I think they see in it a model for what all of us can do with Scripture. This isn't meant to replace Scripture. I'm not re- you know, uh, saying let's canonize this version instead. It, I, but I think this is what all of us have to do all the time is we have to retranslate Scripture into words that make sense to us. Oh, wouldn't that be a great exercise yeah. to do when you're studying the Scriptures? Yeah, I love that and, idea. And I think we can all do it. We can all do. I mean, I, you know, it's written in English, and I translated from English to English. There were no special skills or tools that I have that allowed me to do that. But I think we can all do that. And and actually, I think the Doctrine and Covenants is a good place to start with this because I've heard a lot of people say it's hard to study the Doctrine and Covenants because there's no narrative. Um, there's a lot of really declaratory language. It's um, it, it can be a little off-putting for people who really like the New Testament or the Book of Mormon or things like that. I call so, it Franken-Scripture. It is. Because it's glued together it revelations. Is. And as an editor, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no flow here. That, there's that, no story. Exactly right. If you care about story, <laughs> if you care about character, I mean, the things that we care about, this is why we read fiction. This is why we read novels. This is why the New Testament and the Book of Mormon are so powerful, because they give us stories. The Doctrine and Covenants does none of that. Maybe this is one tool that people can use in their own scripture studies. Again, not that we all have to publish these or anything like this, but just for yourself to say, what is God telling me in these words today? I wish we could read the whole thing, but it's several pages long, just (laughs) like the section is several pages long. But because it's my prerogative, I'm going to share with you my favorite set of phrases. And maybe if you have a favorite section that is not the same, you could share those as well. This is toward the end. You say, the church of Jesus Christ is the only true and living church. That's not because of any great virtues of its individual members, all of whom are in need of repentance, but because collectively the church points people to salvation in Christ and the building of Zion. Yeah, I mean, that's me trying to wrestle with this language of only true and living church. And what, what does that mean? What is he telling us? And he specifically tells us he doesn't mean it individually, he means it collectively. The other passages I, I like there are, you know, where he's talking about Joseph Smith in his weakness, right? And so it, on the one hand, he is he's telling us Joseph Smith is the prophet of the restoration, but people, let's not turn him into an idol, right? And And so there are... There's it, it's a it's a rich section. It is theologically rich. I you know the early I, I think we get turned off a little bit because the early passages in it are so harsh. They're apocalyptic. There's a lot of judgment in there. I think it's important for us to think through like what does that language mean to us? And you know, especially now that we seem more attuned to the mercy of God and the love of God rather than the judgment and justice of God. How do we make sense of that? For me, this is why I love scripture. Because you can just come back to it over and over and over again. This is why they are the standard works. This is why this is timeless. This is, these are God's words to all of his children, not just in 1831. 
but in uh, 2020, uh, 2021. So what's next up for you? Signed, David Pulsifer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I have a new book that's uh, coming out this year, but it's a co-authored book with David Pulsifer, who's a professor up at BYU-Idaho and ter- terrific colleague and terrific Latter-day Saint. This is a book, it's, it's called Proclaim Peace, uh, The Restoration's Answer to an Age of Conflict. This is where David and I dive into the scriptures again and try to figure out what do they tell us about questions of conflict and violence and what do they call us to do as followers of the Prince of Peace. And so in this book, which is going to be published by the Maxwell Institute and Deseret Book, uh, we try to place nonviolence back at the ethical heart of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we think that's, uh, that's where it maybe should have been all along. Thank you for this book. It was brilliant. It was uplifting. It helped me feel peaceful. It helped clear up some confusion. I I consider it a real gift to your fellow members of the church. Thanks. That means a lot. Thanks, Laura. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.